0: podcast
1: one production hi I'm Helen McCabe founder of future women a club helping women to connect learn and lead over my career I've run teams inside newspapers edited a magazine and launched my own business this has meant building a team from scratch leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong, and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Being in a leadership role when you do not own the company often means achieving the goals others have set out, and at times this can start to feel unfulfilling and unaligned with our personal goals. So, what do we do when we feel like our job doesn't align with our purpose? My guest today, Adopt Change CEO Renee Carter, had this exact experience. Prior to becoming the CEO of Adopt Change, Renee worked in corporate and investor relations but she harboured a nagging sense that there was more to life than just having a job. And like many people, she wanted a role which gave her life more purpose. So, despite having no experience in running a not-for-profit, she simply walked into the role and implemented a radical reform strategy. But first, she had to overcome multiple challenges. She had only a few staff and very limited funding sources. She also faced intense opposition, from critics of overseas adoptions. Today, Renee heads a team of over 25 people and has successfully repositioned the entire organisation. So, how did she do it and how can you do it? Renee Carter, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thank you, Helen. I want to start with how you became the CEO of Adopt Change.
0: Look, it was quite an interesting experience. I was um, a partner in a communications firm, But my heart was for trying to make the system better for kids because I had seen that um, you had young children in foster care who had no say over what was happening to them and I was really passionate about uh, trying to bring about change for them. So I reached out to Adopt Change just to have a conversation and find out how I could help in the future when my kids had grown up Uh, and a few months later I was in the CEO role.
1: I find that trajectory really interesting, and I think um, our audience will too. Like you're in a completely different job, you sort of know it's not what you want, and your passion somewhere else. So, exactly what did you do to navigate your way out of a role that you were over or no longer interested in?
0: Mm. Uh, look, the the role had served me well. I'd been in that uh, sector as such for around twenty years. Um, and I had over time known that this was something that I wanted to get involved in. So I had previously joined a not-for-profit board in the space, spent a few years doing that. Knew I didn't particularly want to go back and study. I'm a very hands-on uh, learner. And um, so I thought about how I could actually just switch completely different sectors. So I was working in communications with large listed companies, very, very different world but I had also um, seen a lot in the the foster care space and so it was a personal passion of mine. Uh, And someone said to me, who do you need to meet that does what you want to do? And at that time, um, Deborah Lee Finesse was one of my heroes and I thought, well, she does what I want to do. She's an advocate for kids. She's got an organisation, Adopt Change, that does that. I'm not going to meet Deborah Lee, so I'll reach out to her um, CEO and have a chat. And so I um, had a coffee and had a talk about what I could do in the future. And um, yeah, it was only a space of a, a few months later, it turned out that she was leaving the role. And so I went through that process and made plans to temporarily leave my organisation that um, I was involved in. And then over time, it evolved into being an
1: ongoing role. In order to give um, people that are sitting there listening to this some hope, how long did it take you to find your way out of a role that you weren't passionate about and into the perfect role? Like how long was that process? Mm. Look, I always
0: had planned to be in this type of space, not this specific role. So it was always there in the back of my mind. But I found, a, I guess you could call it a journal entry from a number of years back. And it was 10 years prior to me getting the role that I was uncomfortable with what I was uh, doing in the sense that that didn't feel like what my purpose was anymore. Um, it had been satisfying for a long time, but I knew that I wanted to be in quite a different space. I didn't know exactly what that was that 10 years prior, and I definitely didn't know how to get there when I figured out what it was that I wanted to do. Um, I remember even mapping out when I when I had figured it out what the organisation could look like if I had to set it up from scratch. And so I've always um, spoken to other people about it. I've had um, informal mentors over the years, and I love hearing from other people what their thoughts are. And and that's where that question came from, which was, who do you need to meet? And that was because I was a little bit snookered in trying to figure out how to get across. I studied a few different um, short courses to try and upskill as well in the, in the meantime. But um, once I figure out what it is that I do want to do, then I jump in the deep end, which is um, really what happened. And to switch across, I remember it was a, it was a scary jump as well.
1: What was the scariest part, meeting Deborah Lee and Hugh Jackman?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, no, that was a a nice part of it. But um, I think the scary part was all of the unknowns. So um, knowing that I was coming into a sector where um, if you look at anyone's CV with the different people that I'm meeting with, that there are a lot of differences between what my background was and would there be anything that I wouldn't know how to navigate. So I knew what I wanted to do, but it was about, Can I actually achieve that and can I deliver? And I know that when I first started the role, I sat in a lot of meetings with government and people in the sector and I was probably a lot quieter then, thinking that everybody knew more than me in that space and just respectfully listening and trying to figure out the landscape. But once I figured out that there were things that I knew needed to change, I've been a lot more vocal um, and able to really push on different things that need to be pushed on.
1: It is a very complex landscape and it is intimidating being in those meetings, and I've sat through many of them as well. But it strikes me that you are not, therefore, a traditional female leader because over and over again in this room, I talk to people who say women need to fulfil 110% of the job requirements before they put their hand up. You just put your hand up.
0: Yes, that's been a... <laughs> it's either a good thing or a bad thing. Um, yeah, I have typically in a lot of different situations, Knowing what I want, jumped in and went, oh, my goodness, now I need to figure out how to make this work um, and have always been able to, but there are those moments where you just think, is this the time that it's not going to, um, you know, come And through. does it ever not work? Like... Not so far, not so far. And that is partly because I know when I need to call other people in as well. So, um, you know, when, when do you need help? You can't do everything. And I, I don't think that your leadership is is compromised or threatened by bringing in people that know more than you on a whole range of topics. So it could be on risk management or um, finance or uh, whatever it is, writing policy. There's a whole range of things. Um, I know recently one of my great team members who's equally as passionate um, and I were talking about a project and I had... Um, Pushed on something with, with a particular stakeholder that I thought was important and they had said no. And usually I will um, debate it. And in this instance, I thought I'll let that one through to the keeper. And then my um, staff member said, no, no, I'm going to go back to them on that. And she won the battle and it was important. And actually it was, um, it, it, and again, it was communication of a particular thing that we wanted to educate people on. Um, so I think that, you know, there are times where you're, you're not going to have the energy to, to keep um, fighting or or know the answer. So yeah, that's, I really think that your team is a very important part of it.
1: Time and again, the the people that sit where you are seated today say exactly that. And I think it perhaps is a hallmark of successful leadership is that you are prepared to hire people that are smarter and better than you. And I think it's one of the things that I do very well. I think most of my team is much more talented at pretty much everything that I do. Uh, and that makes me very happy. Uh, Mm. And the older I get, the happier I get by Mm. that. Mm. One of our earlier interviews is with Andrea Clark, and Andrea talks about standing for something. So in terms of seeing yourself as a leader, and you don't have to lead 100 people or 1,000 people. You can lead one or two in your life. Uh, But she says it's really important to identify something that you stand for that makes you different. And it strikes me that you did just that. You knew what you were passionate about. Can you talk to me a little bit more about your passion for foster children? Mm, mm. Well, look, I guess the best way to think of it is
0: to imagine a stadium uh, that's full, so 45,000 seats, and it's full of children. That's the number of children in Australia that are in foster care. Um, and some of those children have got great um, homes and stable and they'll they'll grow up in that home, but um, many of them don't find permanency. They've already experienced abuse and neglect um, in their family of origin typically and that's why they've come into the care system and most don't go home. So some do um, and that's where short-term foster care is great. But when you have a child that has come into care and has been moving from home to home and we're talking, I, I met a young um, woman who'd moved 38 times young man who'd moved 70 times, it's just, it's really hard to even comprehend. Uh, and when you think that behind those stats is an individual child that has that experience um, and goes to bed at night and doesn't know where they're going the next day or keeps a bowl of fruit in their room because they're worried about where their next meal is coming from and doesn't know who's going to sign their their note for school in time, they're really real, tangible, everyday things that in Australia all kids should be able to have. I mean, it's what childhood is about. So, I guess for me, I believe that we should be able to provide that childhood to children in Australia. So, we, sh- we should be able to provide safe homes and supportive schools and communities that look after these kids that have already been through too much. Um, and so, that's what drives me. Tell me what your
1: day looks like. I'm just trying it's, to work out yeah. how you fit all this in.
0: <laughs> it's a juggle. Um, definitely. And every day is about reprioritizing. So looking at, because I guess a lot of it is about creating opportunities, um, new ideas, new things, and how do we get to where we need to get to. So that does generate a lot of things to do. And in each day, it's looking at what is most urgent and important from a work perspective. Um, I remember a number of years back thinking uh, that it was hard to sort of walk in the front door from work and then switch into mum mode. And so how did you know when, when work is flexible and when you can work at any hour of the day and be reached at any of hour of the day um, and then you have kids to raise as well and all your other things in life that you want to fit in? How do you do that? And I remember the most helpful thing for me was um, wherever you are, be all there. So I've figured out the things that are really important to me with my kids, Um, so things like having dinner together and sitting down and talking, bedtimes, um, you know, those times that I need to make with them, that's I'm not checking my phone, I'm not thinking about work in those moments. Um, And likewise, when I'm at work, unless there's been some kind of drama, I'm not thinking about other personal things, I'm really focused. So I think it's about being in that moment, knowing what needs to happen And definitely being flexible. So if you are going to make sure that you're there for for dinner time, um, it means that you, you know, probably need to be up at night doing something. But I'm a night owl, so, um, you know, it means when I'm doing work at night, I don't have people calling or interrupting and I can focus at that time. So I think it's just about that juggle and making sure that you don't burn yourself out in that process. What was challenging was probably this year with COVID when all of a sudden the two worlds collided. Um, because my wherever you are, be be all there was all of a sudden I was both working from home and had kids schooling from home. And what did that look like to be present for them? Um, And I realized at one point as well, wow, they're they're seeing me not in mum mode. They're seeing me focused on work. And that's a very different mode. Um, So, you know, fortunately for me, they were quite um, self-directed during schooling, which was great, but it was then figuring out, okay, well, what does that look like? we've, you know, we we had hot lunches and sat down together and made that time really clearly us time as well. But it was definitely exhausting trying to juggle during that period.
1: I was going to ask how COVID-19 has impacted your work, mm. but the two things came together very quickly.
0: They, they did, because we saw that there was a real risk um, and there's probably still a, a risk of what happens if we have carers that are no longer able to be carers or we have more kids coming into the system because of isolation and we don't have enough carers already. So how are we going to set up to improve the system so that we can actually make sure that we're connecting homes with children and what can we do to support? And then our services to support carers in New South Wales Um a lot of them were face-to-face and all of a sudden carers couldn't meet together for peer support or for face-to-face training. And while there was some flexibility in what we could do with our programs, we thought it was important to pivot um, and to move things online. And we created some new services and all great ideas, jump in again, Mm -hmm. (laughs) peak first, and then realise that with each of those, we had to um, do all the paperwork and the other things that come with it. So it's definitely been um, tiring for the team as well, but it's been important do you have sleepless nights? Uh, no, I think I'm usually too exhausted. <laughs> I go till I crash. I find it hard sometimes to switch off um, from it. Um, and I know, you know, I looked at some um, cases in Queensland recently that really personally affected me as well um, in reading that. So it's trying to find how do you remember what it's about and why you're doing it.
1: One of the reasons that I'm interviewing you is because I was on the board of Adopt Change and part of this organisation for a number of years, and I'm and I'm still an ambassador of the organisation, uh, and um, also feel very strongly about it. But what you've done is fascinating from a number of points of view. One, how you spun out of a career that was in a dead end for you, and then how you've uh, really taken this organisation by storm uh, and elevated it. Uh, beyond what we were doing at the time prior to your appointment. Thirdly, taking step up into a leadership position that you, you hadn't held before. Uh, and fourthly, married quite complex issues. So not only is the foster care issue enormous, 45,000, there's also the adoption issue, which were some of the things that we really grappled with as a board. So I'm going to try and break those down a little bit. How did you find your leadership mojo? You you take Mm. the job, you're passionate about it, and plenty of people take those jobs. How did you um, naturally find your leadership Mm. skill set?
0: I think I cut my teeth on leadership with the previous role. So I was managing director and I had a um, similar-sized team to what I have now. But I think that the difference has been, um, and I really believe in that leadership is quite different to management Um, So I think that you should be collecting people around you that are really good at what they do and that they don't need a high level of management, that they can drive themselves and they can be autonomous. And I guess the difference with this role is it has a lot of meaning for me and it drives me, but that is also the case with a lot of our team and volunteers is that they are people that have seen uh, what needs change and they are passionate about better futures for kids and so that also drives them And so, I think what it is as a leader in this space is to paint the picture of what the vision is. So, this is what we want Australia to look like. We want Australia to be good at looking after kids, for kids to have a good childhood, and to keep it that simple and share that vision with people and have them run alongside you. So, you know, I feel very privileged to work alongside a lot of people that have got better skills than me in a lot of areas. And I think that's one of the things is I've been able to see what needs to happen. We know what the goal is. We're really clear on the goal. uh, And I need other people to um, be doing the things that will get us there. So um, I think that's what it's about is finding the right team of people to run with and just keeping that vision up front. And and there's times where people can lose sight of that vision. And I think it's about refocusing. What do you think you do really well? I, I think... Collecting people that <laughs> are skilled mm. is is one and I think that I'm very persistent so I can see the goal um, and I may not know the technical way to get there or or the best way but I'll be collecting people and just persistent so I'll keep going at it. Um, there's always times where, you know, you can feel deflated if you've um, hit your head against a wall a number of times but it's about just looking at different ways to get there. So I think that's the thing is keeping your eye on the prize Um, knowing that it's actually really important and it's for a purpose really does help to drive that and then just keeping on
1: going. What challenged you most or surprised you the most about working in the not-for-profit sector? Mm,
0: mm. Well, when I first came into it, I had to really figure out what the landscape was. Um, There was all types of challenges. So um, sustainability of an organisation financially is very practical There were a lot of things happening at the same time and you had to kind of juggle and and make them all work. So um, there's a lot of, I guess, red tape and paperwork and bureaucracy and that can take a lot of time. So it's trying to figure out how do you keep moving towards your goal but you also have to make sure the governance um, still happens and and the right things happen. So all the different um, documents you have to lodge and um, things you have to keep an eye on, particularly if you get things like government contracts and there's even more reporting. So how do you not get swamped by that and become part of the system? I mean, basically what you're trying to do is is ch- create change. I mean, it's part of our name as well, Adopt Change. It's about change um, for kids and improving things. So how do you keep bringing that about but but still doing the things that you're obliged to do?
1: Do you think there's any difference between leading uh, a team in a not-for-profit versus, you know, and the organization she led before?
0: Uh, yes, I, I do. I mean, there's a lot of common things. Um, I think even if you're, if you're in a, um, a business, it's still about painting that picture of what you're about. And I think if you're in the right not-for-profit for you or any organization, and, and that is your why and what you're about and what gets you up in the morning and, keeps you awake at night, then that's a lot easier um, to to lead people in that space because they're, I think, inspired by your passion for it as well and they catch that energy and feed off that energy and if you've got those kind of people around you, it, it, it works for you as a leader as well.
1: It's an incredibly complex area and there is so much that needs to be done. How do you and your team remain motivated? Mm.
0: We have set a number of I guess, goals that aren't just the end goal. So what does it look like uh, for change? And we know what that vision is uh, into the future, but what do um, small milestones look like? What are successes? So uh, within our team where we're recruiting for more carers for kids, for example, and we know that that's another potential new home, when we reach certain number of homes we we celebrate or when we hear from a carer, that we've really supported them through that process of becoming a carer or through a challenge that they've faced either with their agency or difficulty they've had with their child or something like that, when we hear from them that we're helping them and that's, you know, one child that's um, now got a new home or um, they're really tangible things that, I mean, it, it really does make a difference for that child. So we want to see a more holistic change, um, but there are those things that we you need to celebrate the wins along the way.
1: One of the challenges in that organisation is that there are a lot of differing views around the raising of children and the foster of children and the adoption of children. As I mentioned before, you navigated that space, which is highly contentious and really difficult, better than anyone. How did you do that? Adoption
0: is a really contentious issue because it's been conducted so badly um, in the past. So we have. Um, shameful practices that have taken place in Australia in terms of the stolen generations and forced adoptions. And there are still people reeling from um, the impact of that today. So I think it's really important to understand that and to hear where people are coming from and what the concerns are and, If it's practiced badly, it is absolutely terrible and we shouldn't go there. But it is one of the options that should be available for children if it's in their best interest. Uh, I think it's also been about broadening the conversation to um, keep reminding people what it's about, that it's not about just having adoption numbers increase, it's actually about providing more um, stable homes for kids. So a couple of years into the role, we created the um, tagline A Home for Every Child And we found by using that as our campaign and reminding people that that's actually what what it's about, is a home for every child. And then you can talk about all the things and what that means and permanency and adoption and the different options. But that took a little bit of the sting out of the, the phrasing of it. And it meant that it was something that we could discuss with all kinds of stakeholders. That's very hard to argue with.
1: You make that sound eminently sensible, but I have sat in meetings in Canberra and in other jurisdictions where that language does not cut through, where you get told very politely uh, that that's all well and good, but there is high risk involved with moving children around from home to home or country to country, and that that is a risk that no one is really prepared to to take. What is it about you that has that cut through?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Look, I think um, there's been times where it has felt like, well, this isn't having the cut through, but I think in the last few months uh, we have seen that it has and that the work of the organisation over the last 10 years has um, really started to pay off now as well. So one of uh, our states that was very anti-adoption has just recently um, turned uh, their legislation on its head and and they are now talking about the fact that every child deserves a, a forever home. Um, And they have unfortunately seen the hard way that if you leave children in dangerous situations, it's terrible. So I I think, again, it probably comes back to just that clarity and persistence that this is the message um, and it's going to take time, but it's something that's worth fighting for. Um,
1: And is that your communications background, do you think? You kind of understand that if you just keep the message simple, that you can eventually uh, deliver real change? Look, I was surprised by
0: how transferable the skills were. So to come from communication side, um, that communications and how you present your message and your organisation and what you're about, the ability to articulate that is really key. It, it's the basis of so many things, from a meeting that you're having with different stakeholders through to your um, campaign messaging or a, an op-ed that you write. It's really about what is the core message and how do you get that across to people. So... Um yes I think the the communication side definitely helpful there
1: if you've got any advice to people listening around how to get into the not-for-profit sector, I think I think many of us look for work that's meaningful and purposeful and that's the holy grail mm. uh, so what what would your advice now that you you know what you know mm. what do you need to think about and mm. how would you do it?
0: I think it is really important to do that work with yourself, figuring out what your why is, what is it that means something to you. So if there, if there isn't a particular issue, I think that makes it a bit harder. There are so many different issues that need sorting in the world and I think we've got limited energy and resources and time and so it's about picking something that's important to you, that resonates with you, that you're going to feel is going to drive you through all the different obstacles I guess if somebody is coming from outside the not-for-profit sector, it's understanding what your transferable skills are as well and where they can be applied because there's a number of not-for-profit boards that, that need input. So it could be anything from someone that's got a, a finance background or, um, or something else. So, I mean, being involved from a board perspective is a really um, great way or being a volunteer so I know I've got um, a few staff that started out as volunteers. They were very passionate about it, um, very persistent. The difference is, again, with volunteers that have worked out versus those that haven't is that they chased me. And um, as a leader of what was a quite small organisation um, to start with as well, there's such limited time and you can't be doing all the work to onboard a volunteer and, and creating all of that. They need to almost create their own role. and that's, Well, that's been my experience um, and those people have then ended up being great team members as well. So, I think it is about finding what the cause is that's important to you, and then yeah, what your skill set is
1: and what you can bring to the table. Can you imagine not working in not for profit now? And is there a organisation you hope to kind of move to? Have you got another kind of plan there on the horizon that you'll be figuring out in a little while how to get there? Mm, I think there's a
0: lot to do in this space. I don't think I could um, move out of a for-purpose organisation after this. So really this is, um, very much a passion project. And while I can offer something to the role, I will, um, I think I've seen some positive change recently. So yeah, it's definitely not something I'm planning at this point. Um, I think down the track, not in the current future, (laughs) although I've said that before, um, Unfortunately, you know, and even just through looking at, at what I look at now, there's um, way too much child trafficking in the world. It's a really awful, insidious problem. Um, and so I think that that would be the, the future step as well is looking at what can I do in that space. Staying with children. Still,
1: yes. Tell me about the kids. Tell me how that process is going, what you feel like you've done so far and where do you want to get to?
0: mm Uh, So I guess as an organisation, we started with more of a focus on adoption um, and part of that was around inter-country adoption. There has been more of a focus domestically on Australia. This is our backyard. We need to really sort out the mess that we have here. Uh, So I think what has happened is we are really regularly discussing in the media and with government what needs to change There's a lot more community awareness um, about permanency for kids. Government committed in um, a few years ago to providing, um, making permanency a commitment. And so after that, a year in, we set up a conference and um, said, well, we want to hear about the progress in that space. So there's accountability there um, and reporting on what's changing. So we are seeing more children find permanency. So um, we can look at the reported figures, um, the numbers increasing, particularly in New South Wales, Um, for more kids finding the stability. So that's happening and I think we'll keep pushing on that. But we're also finding out other things that we want to be involved into in that process. So unfortunately, young people that leave the system at 18, as I mentioned, you know, often may end up homeless. And when we talk to these young people, I think that's what's important when, you know, we see what happens for kids but also the young people um, leaving the system and they explain to you it's not about at 18 having government money thrown at you to support you. That doesn't mean that you can find an apartment because you don't, you know, if you've come out of residential care, you don't necessarily have the, um, the information that, to support that you could, um, you know, apply for that unit. Um, so speaking to a, a young person recently, she said she doesn't have that person to go home to that'll cook a meal for them when they're having a hard time and talk about the job interview with them the next day. Uh, So it it really is that difference and I think listening to those young people makes us see how much more support needs to happen in that space and that's something that we'll do more with.
1: Uh, To anyone who's listening today, um, what can we do?
0: There are so many things that people can do. So we definitely don't have enough uh, homes for children in Australia Um, and while you may not have a full-time home to be a permanent um, or adoptive carer, We also need um, part-time carers, so people that can um, spend time with kids, say, one weekend a month ongoing um, with the same child and take them camping, teach them how to cook, just be that person that um, becomes part of their extended family. Um, We've had different people who haven't been able to open their home but have um, decided to knit blankets for the backpacks for kids that are going into foster care. Um, They can support us financially. They can support us by keeping... Uh, the light shining on the issue by sharing the message and, you know, or looking to volunteer with us and, and get involved and, and see how they can support us. There's a lot of things. So if you um, visit our website, it's probably the start of that journey to figure out what you can do.
1: I can't stress enough how big a difference you've made uh, in the organisation since you took it over and uh, in the lives of children. What you've accomplished is enormous. And as I said at the outset when you walked in the door, Uh, people fall over themselves to tell me what a great leader you are. So you are a brilliant addition to the Leadership Series and I hope that many of our listeners today will take away uh, some of the learnings, particularly around doing work that is purposeful and meaningful. Thank you for joining us today. It's an absolute privilege to know you and to spend some time with you. Thank you, Helen. Pleasure. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive Producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound Production by Darcy Thompson.